Hi, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking from top academics at the University of Cambridge and beyond. Dan Williams is a research fellow in philosophy here in Cambridge. Dan's work mostly explores questions in the philosophy of mind and psychology, and his main research interest right now is on how different kinds of rationality are socially adaptive. In particular, how do we explain political misinformation in terms of ideas about signalling? This was a really fun conversation. We talk about conspiracy theories, political polarisation, climate change denial, and even why peacocks got their tails. Also worth mentioning that we do cover some potentially sensitive topics, which are described in the show notes. Here's Dan Williams. I'm Daniel Williams. I'm a research fellow at Corpus Christi College, University of Cambridge. And I work primarily in the philosophy of psychology and social science. And right now I'm pursuing a research project on what I call socially adaptive beliefs. So these are beliefs that we form because of their effects on other people. And I'm especially interested at the moment in cases in which people form beliefs, not because they're best supported by the evidence, but because they signal their membership of their loyalty to particular groups or subcultures. Got it. And briefly, how did you get interested in philosophy and in this topic in particular? Um, So I'm not sure that I am interested in philosophy generally. So I've always been interested in questions about human psychology, human social behaviour. And philosophy tends to be useful when you're dealing with questions that we don't know how to sort of straightforwardly answer with current science. And I think because our current scientific understanding of the mind and, and human society is sort of so comparatively shallow, it means there's lots of useful, interesting, conceptual, methodological, theoretical work for philosophers to do. And that's the kind of work that I find most interesting. So work which is sort of highly constrained by research and empirical science, but not wholly determined by ongoing empirical research. In terms of this topic specifically, I'm interested in irrational beliefs because I think that they're sort of genuinely puzzling from a theoretical point of view. I think that from a certain perspective, the human mind is this exquisitely adaptive information processing mechanism with capabilities that sort of far outstrip our most impressive, most expensive AI. And I think in most contexts, people form beliefs, make decisions in ways which are remarkably rational, not infallible, not perfectly rational, but still pretty impressive. And yet there are some contexts and some cases in which people think and reason in ways which just look sort of manifestly, almost absurdly irrational. And I think that's kind of puzzling. Why would this otherwise rational species sometimes lapse into sort of manifest irrationality? And my view is a sort of underexplored answer to that question, definitely not original to me, but I do think an answer which doesn't receive sufficient attention in philosophy and elsewhere is that, at least in certain cases, what we think of as irrationality is really a kind of adaptive or rational response to the kinds of incentives that we face as social animals, animals concerned with goals like reputation, status, belonging, loyalty, commitment, and so on, which can come into conflict with kind of epistemic goals of truth, knowledge, dispassionate reasoning. So I'm kind of interested, I think the topic is intrinsically interesting, and I think there's this underexplored way of approaching this topic which deserves more attention in philosophy and social sciences. Okay, so we're thinking of what you're doing as a kind of young or exploratory psychology slash cognitive science. You're sketching out the shape that an answer might take for the scientist to go fill in. But it's philosophy in that sense, not philosophy in the broader sense. I think so, yeah. I mean, um, Jerry Fodor once described this kind of work as speculative theoretical psychology. And I'll definitely say a large part of my research is um, falls into that sort of general category. 
Um, I am also interested in questions in the philosophy of science more generally, like what's the nature of explanation? What's the relationship between different scientific disciplines like psychology and neuroscience? But this research project is really sort of speculative theoretical psychology. It's trying to develop models of how the mind works that are sort of constrained by ongoing empirical research, but in some sense go beyond what current empirical research offers. So we're going to be talking about signalling in this conversation. Can you just explain a bit about what economists and philosophers mean by a signal? Yeah, so in the most general sense, a signal is just anything that has the function of conveying information. So you find signalling wherever you find communication between agents. So that's going to include everything from the kind of alarm calls of vervet monkeys to the kind of lavish tales produced by peacocks to the kind of complexities and nuances of human language. So signalling is a sort of very general concept that applies whenever you're dealing with things that have the function of conveying information. Well, the kind of contrast case is with things that convey information, but it's not their function to convey information. So cues rather than signals. Got it. And could you give an example of signaling from the natural world? Like you mentioned peacock tails. How do we explain peacock tails in terms of signals? Yeah, well, it turns out it turns out to be a really controversial issue exactly to explain what's going on with peacock tails. But one explanation is that they're a signal of mate value, which is credible because producing and maintaining these tails is associated with certain kinds of costs. So if you step back, there's this sort of issue which signaling theory addresses, which is how can signals be reliable under conditions where there are potential conflicts of interest between those sending the signal and those who are sort of detecting and responding to the signal? And a classic case of this is when there are incentives for deception. So if you think about mate choice, it's very often the case in biology that females are trying to choose those mates, those males who are sort of strong and healthy and fertile and so on. So it's in the interest of strong and healthy males to broadcast this information about themselves. It's in the interest of females to extract information about which males are strong and healthy. But the problem is it's also in the interest of sort of weak and unhealthy males to trick females into thinking that they're strong and healthy. So you've got these incentives for deception. And the problem is if signaling systems become sort of co-opted by those who are using them deceptively, the signals will lose their informational value. And so they'll just be ignored. So the question is, how do signaling systems sort of solve this problem? How do they guard against deception? And one answer to that is this concept of costly signaling, where the idea is signals can be reliable if they're associated with certain kinds of costs, such that only those agents who send the signal honestly are willing or able to pay those costs. That's really abstract, but if you think about the case of a peacock's tail, it's kind of puzzling because on the one hand, it doesn't seem to do anything relevant to a peacock's survival, these kind of lavish tails that they produce. And in fact, they seem to be a kind of survival disadvantage. So they require lots of energetic expenditure to produce and maintain. They increase the risk of predation. So why on earth would they produce these tails? And one answer is the sort of costs associated with producing these tails is precisely what renders them sort of credible signals of the peacock's mate value, where the idea is only those peacocks who are sort of strong and healthy would be able to produce and maintain such tails and incur the costs that go along with producing them. So they can function as a kind of credible stand-in for the peacock's mate value. So just to make sure that I understand what you said uh, correctly. So signals are a way of conveying information. So it is exactly in areas where we would expect information is lacking at the moment for signals to be useful. So what we would call uh, asymmetric information, where one person um, knows something about either themselves or the situation at large, and the other person critically does not. 
And the way that you can convey this information is, as you were saying, a signal that it is critical, it is costly as well, because otherwise everybody uh, could just be doing it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's important to bear in mind that it needn't always be the case that signals are associated with strategic costs. So there are, are cases in which signals can be reliable just because there's some sort of lawful relationship between the signal and its reference. So in evolutionary biology, this is often referred to as indices. So if you think about a lion's roar, it's a kind of credible signal of its size. Why is it a credible signal of its size? Well, because there's some sort of lawful relationship between the roar and a lion's size. If you're a smaller lion, you're just constitutionally incapable of producing the relevant acoustic properties of that roar. Um, but you also make the point that uh, you know, economists are especially interested in this when you're dealing with cases of asymmetric information, which is sort of ubiquitous in the economic domain. My own research largely draws on signaling theory as it features in evolutionary biology. And it's got an interesting feature of signaling theory that it has these sort of three independent origin, origins in the late 1960s and 1970s. So you find it in philosophy, primarily in the work of David Lewis on how conventional meaning can arise in signaling games. You find it in economics and the work of people like Michael Spence mm. on formal education as a kind of credentialing system. And you find it in biology with the work of, among other people, Amot Sahavi on the handicap principle. So it has these sort of three independent origins um, in these different disciplines. So we've looked at how signals often play a role in evolutionary biology. It might be interesting just to flesh out how they help explain um, questions in economics. You mentioned higher education as a kind of signaling. Can you just tell us what that means? Yeah, so there the idea is that um, sort of standard story about education is that people go to school and university in order to learn things. So it provides them with skill and knowledge that they can then use later on in the, in the labour market. But plausibly, another really important function of education is to sort of distinguish between those who have traits which are desirable to prospective employers and those who don't. So if you achieve a sort of really good grade at school or you get a very good degree from a prestigious institution, what that signals about you is that you are intelligent, industrious, conscientious, maybe conformist. So it provides this sort of means of signaling that you have a package of desirable traits to prospective employers. That's one classic case in economics. But there are many cases where people have tried to illuminate social behaviour by appeal to signaling. One classic example of this is the concept of conspicuous consumption by Thorstein Veblen. The idea there is, in sort of socially mobile societies, it's often quite difficult to gauge who's wealthy and who isn't. And the problem is, if you're wealthy, you can't just tell people that you're wealthy, because anyone can say that they're wealthy, so it's easily co-opted by those who would use that signal deceptively. And Veblen argued that one of the solutions to this problem is that wealthy people will often engage in sort of conspicuous consumption of expensive luxury goods, where the idea is only those individuals who are sort of genuinely wealthy would be able to pay the costs, in this case, literally financial costs, associated with such consumption. So buying a Rolex is sort of a way of credibly signaling that you've got money and you've got wealth. So you are interested in particular in voter ignorance and signalling in the political domain. Could you just explain, first of all, in general, what is a belief? Okay, so when we're talking about beliefs, this turns out to be a sort of nightmarishly difficult question in philosophy, what beliefs are. But typically we mean something like an individual's sincere commitment to the truth of a proposition, as contrasted with cases in which they're just lying about what they believe. So in this kind of view, beliefs are just providing you with information concerning how things are, and that information might be accurate or it might be inaccurate. Now, when we're dealing with voter ignorance, we're dealing with sort of ignorance among citizens in contemporary democracies of matters of fact or scientific consensus that are relevant to political decision making. 
And there are two important kinds of that. On the one on the one hand, you've got cases where people are sort of uninformed about something, such that they just lack beliefs about the relevant topic. So if you ask sort of average citizen, what's the difference between fiscal and monetary policy? Very likely they're going to be uninformed about that topic. They're just not going to have beliefs about it. But there are also cases in which people are misinformed about something in the sense that they do have confident beliefs about it. It's just that their beliefs are false or unfounded or at odds with well-established empirical data. So, for example, if you believe that the economy is getting much worse when it's actually getting much better, that would be an example where you have a belief which is inaccurate and so an example of political misinformation. So what's in need of explanation here? Aren't some people just getting their wrong information? Some people end up with the wrong conclusions because they make a mistake when they're reasoning about in the political domain. What's mysterious? I'm not sure that anything is mysterious, but I do think that, first of all, you have to distinguish between different kinds of ignorance because different kinds of explanations will be applicable in different cases. So typically, cases where people are sort of uninformed about something are quite easy to understand. The most plausible explanation of why someone would be uninformed about something is just that they don't care about it and they've been given no incentive to learn about it. Cases where people are misinformed are slightly more difficult to understand because here they care about the topic enough that they've formed a belief about it. It's just that their belief is sort of systematically at odds with the facts. And as you say, in some cases, that's not that difficult to understand because, you know, we're cognitively limited creatures. Of course, we make mistakes. It becomes slightly more difficult to understand when individuals are sort of systematically biased away from the truth in contexts in which it seems like they have enough evidence to figure out what the truth is. And then even in those cases, there are going to be different kinds of explanations of why they're misinformed. So some kinds of explanations are going to appeal to psychological factors, some are going to appeal to technological factors, some are going to appeal to social factors, and some are going to appeal to sort of combinations of all of these factors. So it's sort of difficult to tease apart exactly which explanation is appropriate when it comes to which kind of misinformation. But in general, if you step back, the idea is there is just something puzzling about why people would be not just sort of misinformed in the sense that their errors are sort of randomly distributed around the truth, but systematically biased away from the truth. Got it. It might be useful here just to give one or two examples about this kind of systematic misinformation that we see in politics. Yeah, so I think you could focus on many potential examples. One classic case of this would be conspiracy theories. I take it that believing the earth is flat is a form of misinformation. Believing that Hillary Clinton ran a child sex ring operation in the basement of a pizzeria, which turned out to be quite an influential belief among certain people in the US. That's also a kind of misinformation. Beliefs about climate change, if you think that climate change is a hoax perpetrated by communists in order to undermine Western capitalism, that's a kind of misinformation. So there are just many contexts in which people seem to be holding beliefs which are sort of unfounded and just at odds with what we've got good reason to believe is the case. Cool. So there are lots of, as you mentioned, lots of explanations of this kind of misinformation. We talk about echo chambers. Maybe there are very powerful malign actors who are funding misinformation channels, but one explanation draws on signaling and applies it to political misinformation. Um, Could you just explain how that might work? Yeah, so when you're dealing with misinformation, there are certain cases in which misinformation is randomly distributed in the population or sort of crosses political divides. But there are certain cases in which misinformation appears to be tied to membership of particular political or cultural groups. So I would call this sort of partisan misinformation or group-based misinformation. And one explanation of this kind of misinformation is that, at least in certain cases, false or unfounded beliefs have come to function as signals of group identity or group loyalty. And what that means is individuals in society, when they're forming beliefs, when they're seeking out and processing information, their concern is sort of not with arriving at the truth, 
but rather with arriving at beliefs that in some sense express their political allegiances. Here's one thing I might say in response to that. Well, I can see how signaling might work in the case of Peacock's Tales because I can see them. And I can also hear lines roar, so that makes sense. But beliefs aren't the kind of things that are observable. So how can we apply signaling to something that we can't see? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And it's sort of one of several worries you might have about this hypothesis. Because as you say, the sort of standard examples of signals are cases in which the relevant signal is observable or perceptible. Whereas beliefs seem like these private, unobservable mental states. So it's kind of obvious how what you say or what you do could function as a signal. It's less obvious how something inside your brain could function as a signal. Ultimately, I don't think that's a particularly compelling worry. I think what's relevant to signaling is not that the signal is observable or perceptible, but just that it's detectable. And I think when it comes to beliefs, we are typically quite reliable at attributing beliefs to each other. We have these really sophisticated capacities of mind reading. And this is facilitated by the fact that in certain contexts, people go out of the way to broadcast the contents of their beliefs. And I think non-accidentally, one of those contexts is very often politics. So I think it can be quite difficult sometimes to spend any amount of time with someone and not figure out what they believe. So in this sense, because we've got reliable access to the contents of what other people believe, it means that beliefs, I think, can be subject to these kinds of social signaling pressures. Got it. Now, if I have an interest in demonstrating that I belong to some group because it would benefit me if other people believe that, um, but I also don't believe the things that the group wants to go along with, then why don't I just deceive other people and hold completely different beliefs to the things I express that I do believe in? Yeah, this is a great question. And I should probably step back and say, we're talking about the signaling hypothesis. And it is a hypothesis. And although it is quite influential, it might be the case that actually is false and that we do never see this phenomenon. And one of, I think, the most, one of the most important worries about this hypothesis is that, as you say, it seems like if your goal is to fit in with some affinity group or subculture, it would be more practically advantageous to just pretend to hold certain beliefs, profess to hold certain beliefs, rather than actually forming them. Because that way you reap all of the advantages of fitting in with the affinity group or subculture, whilst also preserving a model of the world which is sort of well-grounded in your evidence. And it's a sort of doubly pressing problem because we know that people do hide what they believe and we know that they do lie about what they believe. There was a study that came out recently that in a certain population of Democrats in the US, they asked them whether they would rather Trump win the next election or for a meteor to hit planet Earth and wipe out all life. And a significant number of them said that they would rather the latter option occurs. And presumably they don't actually believe that. That's just a way of sort of signaling, here's how much I hate Trump. And there's also a large literature in social science and what's known as preference falsification, which is just the idea that people will sort of hide what they believe and prefer or lie about what they believe or prefer in order to sort of avoid social condemnation or to score social brownie points. So I think you're exactly right that this is, in some sense, sort of deepest problem with a signaling hypothesis. My own view is that it's not devastating because conscious deception does in fact bring certain kinds of costs, which social signaling and your beliefs doesn't. So firstly, lying is costly merely in the sense that it requires you to sort of keep track of your lies, to keep this gulf between what you privately believe and what you profess to believe. And also, people will be kind of pissed if they find out that you're lying about something. There's something kind of inauthentic about that. So conscious deception does bring its own costs. And then a really important variable here is that in certain contexts, it's not like holding a grounded, well-supported model of the world is particularly beneficial. So if you think about most political beliefs, forming a belief about climate change, it's not really in your practical interests to form a belief which is true in the following sense. 
even if you believe something completely absurd about climate change, it's going to have basically no effect on climate. As an, as an individual voter, you have a kind of negligible impact on political decision making. So you don't really have any practical incentive to form true beliefs, unlike in other everyday contexts where if you form false beliefs, that's going to frustrate your ability to achieve your goals or satisfy your desires. In politics, often, if you form false beliefs, it doesn't really hinder your ability to satisfy your goals or achieve your goals. So I think that even though in some contexts it is practically advantageous just to lie about what you believe, in other contexts it's not, both because conscious deception brings its own costs and there aren't really any strong benefits to um, forming a well-supported, well-grounded model of the world. So it seems to me as well that there might be an interesting distinction uh, or like clarification about how we actually form beliefs ourselves, because it seems at the moment, the way that we're kind of thinking about it is that it's very much like a conscious decision. Um, we read all the facts and we process all of the information and then we form our belief. Um, but when I think about how I form my own beliefs about certain topics, it seems a lot more like, I, I can't even say what the exact causes are. And a lot of it, I think, is in my subconscious happening where I'm sure I am influenced as well uh, by people around me or like I value sources a lot more if they come from people who are in my network or who are closer to me rather than uh, just taking the facts and then trying to see what is the most accurate. Um, I'm not entirely sure exactly how, how we form beliefs and that might be something interesting worth pointing out. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question and there are lots of different things going on there. One thing you're alluding to is that you know, we don't really have good introspective access to how we end up with the beliefs that we end up with, which is kind of obvious when you think about it. But I think it's not obvious to certain people, because if I ask you why you believe something, you can very often provide me with a reason for why you believe it. Mm. And that might trick you into thinking that the reason why you believe it is identified by the reason you provided to justify that belief. When actually, as you say, the beliefs that we end up with are influenced by all sorts of different factors. So like the information we've had access to, the particular kinds of heuristics we use when it comes to extracting information, novel information from the information we've got access to, who we trust, and these social influences. So there's all these myriad influences and in how we end up forming beliefs, and most of them are opaque to us. And I think this is one of the reasons why you shouldn't rule out the signaling hypothesis kind of a priori, mm. because we've got so little introspective access to how we form beliefs that it might very well be the case that the way in which we're forming beliefs is precisely to advertise certain information about ourselves to other people. So it's obviously not always clear how we come to form our own beliefs, and we might just confabulate reasons rather than give accurate reasons. I can also go along with the thought that it would be costly to just constantly deceive other people um, about beliefs in a way that's kind of instrumentally useful for us because we have to track what we've said and what we actually believe, and mm. it's kind of inauthentic. That all makes sense to me. But the signaling hypothesis says that at least certain beliefs here we form because they they kind of function as useful signals. And it just seems really strange to me that we might form beliefs just because they're useful in that sense. Like if someone told me that's the reason I have a belief, I just deny that, right? Like yeah. I never I never decide to believe something mm. because it'd just be useful to believe it. I, I always think I believe something because it's true. Mm. So what exactly is going on when I form these kind of beliefs. Yeah, so a few interesting things going on there. One is that it's definitely not part of the signaling hypothesis that anybody goes through a process of conscious reasoning of the form, if I form such and such belief, that's going to have a desirable effect on such and such people, ergo I should form the belief. So it has to be a kind of unconscious process. And there's something else which you said, which is that when it comes to ourselves, it's really bizarre the idea that we would form our beliefs in order to signal information about ourselves to other people. I do think often when we're thinking about other people, we're often much more open to that explanation, especially if they're on a different political team to us. And I think the signaling hypothesis is often quite useful 
quote unquote useful when you're trying to dismiss the views of other people. And then it can seem quite natural. Like those people over there, they only believe it because they're interested in showing off to their fellow in-group members. Whereas, you know, me, when I form my beliefs, I'm, of course, impartial and objective and interested in the truth. So I do think that there is that kind of distinction. But I also think that, as we were just saying, in general, it's very implausible that we've got much introspective access to how we form beliefs. So the mere fact that we've got this sort of strong impression that we didn't form our beliefs in order to signal certain information about ourselves to other people is not particularly good evidence on the issue one way or the other, I think. And I, I think to, to add to that as well, I think Jonathan Haidt argues uh, that it might very well be that the voice in our head is just not really the person in charge um, of, of coming up with our beliefs, but is rather just used for us to come up with arguments to convince ourselves and other people as to why we believe. But there might very much be this like opaque thing behind that we're even not aware of ourselves that is kind of controlling our, our own thoughts and beliefs. Yeah, so Jonathan Haidt's work has actually been very influential when it comes to how I've been thinking about the signaling hypothesis. And you're exactly right. He's one of those people who argues that when it comes to the conscious mind, a much better metaphor than sort of president or a CEO is a press secretary. Mm. So a press secretary is not the person making the decisions. It's the person excusing or justifying or rationalizing those decisions. And what's important about a press secretary is they occupy this sort of niche in between organizations and an audience which is evaluating those organizations or those institutions or those people occupying particular kinds of roles. And I do think that's also quite a good metaphor for understanding much of the sort of conscious inner monologue that we're experiencing moment by moment. It's a way of, or very often a way of, sort of rationalizing or excusing beliefs that we formed based on processes that are largely opaque to us. So some things obviously acquire their signaling function in... Um, biology or in the natural world through this process of natural selection that's a really good explanation of how they come about and sometimes beliefs acquire that function just because we design them to be that way but it's pretty clear from hearing all this that no one consciously decides right to have a belief just because it's useful as a signal so the question that's that's raised here is through what process do beliefs in the political domain come to have this signaling function yeah, and I think that's a really important question because I think often when people are referring to the signaling hypothesis, they're failing to draw a distinction between two kinds of cases. So one kind of case is when a belief is just a cue of group identity or group loyalty in the sense that it conveys information about what group someone belongs to, what group they're likely to be loyal to, but it wasn't formed for that purpose, which is what's required for something to function as a signal. It has to be the case not just that it does in fact convey information, but the fact that it conveys information is at least part of the explanation for why the signal exists in the form that it does. So if you focus on beliefs, it has to be the case that if a belief is really going to qualify as a social signal, the individual will form that belief because of the information it conveys about her to other agents. And as you say, that clearly can't happen through any process of conscious reasoning, or at the very least it doesn't happen through process of conscious reasoning. Nobody consciously thinks to themselves, if I form this belief, it's going to really impress such and such people. So how does it work? I think it's useful when approaching that question to just first of all focus on sort of non-problematic cases of signaling in human behavior. So it's also implausible that most cases where people are engaged in social signaling in their behavior, that they're consciously conceptualizing their behavior in that way or consciously motivating it as an attempt to signal. So if I buy a Rolex in order to broadcast my wealth, if I sort of name drop in order to signal my social status, if I use complex multisyllabic words in order to signal my intelligence and erudition, it's very rare that I'm actually going to be going through a process of conscious reasoning of the form, this is going to really impress people if I use these kinds of words, right? 
So I think generally what's going on there is there are these unconscious motivations to signal various kinds of things, which interact with information about which specific behaviors and traits convey information about those things in our environment to then guide our behavior. And I think a similar thing happens with belief. I think we have these sort of unconscious motivations to signal things like our commitment, our loyalty to our group, which interacts with information about which specific beliefs are associated with these characteristics in our environment to then influence the way in which we seek out and process information. And that's not done consciously, but it could be done through motivated reasoning, which is sort of independently well-established psychological phenomenon. And that refers to cases in which people seek out and process information, not to arrive at the truth, but rather to arrive at beliefs that they want to arrive at for reasons independent of their truth. And they could be beliefs that they want to arrive at because they make them happy or they reduce anxiety, sort of standard cases of wishful thinking, for example. But they can also be cases in which you want to believe something because it's socially rewarded. And I think there's nothing unintelligible about the idea that motivated reasoning would be applicable in this context. And that also seems to provide an explanation of how it is that the fact that the belief conveys information about you is part of the explanation of why you wanted to form that belief in the first place. Um, A related idea here is motivated reasoning. Can you just explain what it means? So I think in the most general sense, motivated reasoning is conforming the way in which you seek out and process information not to arrive at the truth, but to arrive at beliefs that you want to arrive at for reasons independent of their truth. So a bit of a mouthful, but the abstract character of that description is supposed to make it consistent with various different motivations you might have for wanting to arrive at a belief. As I just mentioned, sometimes you want to arrive at a belief just because it's going to be sort of emotionally satisfying or because you want that belief to be true, sort of standard cases of wishful thinking. I might want to believe that I'm attractive because I want to be attractive, right? There are also cases in which you want to believe something, not because you've got any specific interest in what that belief represents, but because of how other people respond to that belief. This is what I would refer to as socially adaptive beliefs, cases in which you're motivated to form a belief um, because of the effects that that belief has on other people. And you know, motivated reasoning is important because it's not wholly unconstrained. You can't just bring yourself to believe whatever you want to believe. There are sort of constraints on how this works. And typically how it works is it, by adjusting the levers of different aspects of information processing. So, for example, how long you spend seeking out and processing information, the sort of evidentiary standards required to accept or reject the truth of the proposition, sort of opportunistic assignment of trust and distrust, you know, dismissing any unfortunate information as fake news, for example. So there are all these different ways in which motivated reasoning works. And it's not completely unconstrained in the sense that it can only work by sort of subtly influencing these various aspects of information processing, combined with the fact that, at least in my view, it's subject to a pretty strong rationalization constraint, such that we can only bring ourselves to believe things for which we can identify a kind of post hoc rationalization. And that can lead some people to think that, you know, if I ask you what you believe and you give me a reason for that belief, it can lead some people to think that, well, what explains the fact that you hold that belief is given by the reason you provide for it. But very often that's just a kind of post hoc rationalization of a belief that you wanted to form for considerations that have nothing to do with its truth. So one paper I think that really illustrates what you were just saying is um, when people were shown information that uh, kind of challenged one of their assumptions and, uh, you know, they provide um, pretty rigorous evidence for it. It actually strengthened their existing beliefs um, because people would come up with all of these reasons as to why that evidence that they were just shown is wrong. And because they've now been able to come up with all these uh, reasons as to why believing that evidence is wrong they actually think that they are more justified in believing what they initially thought and that actually shows that it might be really hard to actually be able to persuade somebody because we'll always be arguing uh, in order to kind of confirm what we are already thinking 
Yeah. Um, so I think what you're referring to there is what's sometimes called the backfire effect in psychology. And there are some issues with replication with the initial research on that phenomenon, mm-hmm. because it seemed to initially suggest, as you say, that very often when you present someone with evidence against what they believe, they will actually increase their confidence in that belief. I think the sort of st- the state of research now is that that does happen in certain cases where the beliefs are highly relevant to an individual's identity, but very often it doesn't happen. I mean, my favorite example of this phenomenon is um, there's research in the mid-20th century on doomsday cults, so cults which are organized around beliefs that the world is going to end on a certain date, and they studied sort of what happened in these cults when the world <laughs> conspicuously didn't end on those dates. And in many cases, rather than you know updating their beliefs as perfect Bayesian reasoners, they doubled down and they became even more confident that their cult and the beliefs of the cult were correct. So I think it definitely does occur in these sort of extreme cases where the beliefs are highly relevant to their identity. Mm. But I think it's not a sort of general phenomenon. Like generally, it would be really maladaptive if, if whenever someone presented us with evidence against what we believe, we just increased our confidence in our belief. But I do think what that gets at is there are sort of important differences in how we treat beliefs based on why we hold those beliefs. Mm. So if you hold a belief because it's a central part of your identity, it's going to behave very differently to sort of ordinary beliefs about, you know, whether there's milk in the fridge or whatever it is. So we've been talking about this one explanation of political misinformation, which is just that they're socially adaptive. They have some um, signaling function. But presumably there are other explanations of why there is so much partisanship, polarisation and obvious misinformation. Can you just explain some of the other approaches? Yeah, so this is, I think, a really important question because when you're dealing with something like group-based misinformation, there are myriad ways in which an individual's group attachments, group identity might lead them to form inaccurate models about how things work and how things are in the world. So if you think about a case where the signaling hypothesis has been very influential is beliefs about issues of societal risk. So beliefs about things like climate change, fracking, nuclear waste disposal, GMOs, gun control measures, that kind of thing, where sort of core finding here is that people tend to be really polarised along political lines when it comes to these beliefs. And in some cases, the sort of right of the political spectrum seems to harbour beliefs which are at odds with scientific consensus. And in some cases, the left seems to harbour beliefs which are at odds with scientific consensus. And kind of central, very influential explanation of that offered by people like Dan Kahan, is that an issue like climate change has become so politicised in the US that when members of the general public come to forming beliefs about it, their concern is not with finding out how things are, but rather with expressing their political allegiances. So a belief about climate change is a way of signalling, I'm on the Republican team, I'm on the Democrat team. But as you point out, you know there are many potential explanations of why it would be the case that group identities would lead people to form unfounded beliefs. So, for example, when it comes to the difference between Democrats and Republicans, they inhabit different informational environments, they read different newspapers, they trust different people, they watch different television programmes. Certain kinds of media ecosystems are sort of uniquely susceptible to certain kinds of propaganda and disinformation. They trust different people, they have different values. And you know, the social sciences are replete with concepts that refer to ways in which group attachments can lead to inaccurate beliefs. So I think you've already mentioned echo chambers, often refers to the idea that people within a group are sort of disproportionately um, encounter information and arguments which confirm what they already believe. There are also sort of trust-based cases in which they have disproportionate trust in in group members. So there are all these sorts of different ways in which group identities can influence how people end up forming inaccurate beliefs about the world. And I do think one of the really crucial questions here is 
how to distinguish cases in which group-based misinformation is driven by social signaling from cases in which it has these other kind of underlying causes. Got it. And if we're just talking about signaling, um, it might be worthwhile to think about what are the marks of um, a belief that has some signaling function as opposed to a belief that has been generated through these other mechanisms like echo chambers and like the intentional spread of misinformation by powerful actors with some interest in spreading certain false beliefs and so on, right? So what are these um, potential features of, of signals that um, you think might be helpful here? So I think this is, in some sense, sort of still an open question. I think it's quite a difficult question to address, partly because there's sort of no individual thing which will be diagnostic here, because it will always be able to be explained by other factors. But I do think that there are sort of four or five things such that if we observe each of them, that would provide pretty compelling evidence that what's going on is social signaling rather than something else. So these are sort of properties that we should expect beliefs and their believers to have insofar as the beliefs are performing these social signaling functions. So the most obvious thing is you would expect these beliefs to be group specific. They can't perform a signaling function if outgroup members have an incentive to form these beliefs because then they would lose their informational value. And that's trivial in a sense, but it also tells us there are certain kinds of beliefs which are going to be the best sort of candidates for performing these signaling functions. And these are going to be beliefs that outgroup members will have no reason to form. So there will be things like pro-in-group beliefs, believing that your group is the best, the most virtuous, anti-outgroup beliefs, beliefs that members of other groups are stupid or malevolent, beliefs which reflect well on your group. So, for example, believing that the economy is doing well when your political party is in power. And one interesting suggestion in this idea, in this, in this area, is that the sort of best candidates for performing this social signaling function will precisely be those beliefs for which there isn't good evidence, because those are the beliefs that outgroup members won't have any reason to form. Another interesting suggestion is that when it comes to beliefs that signal the believer's loyalty to their in-group, you should expect that the best candidates there will be beliefs which are, in some sense, sort of massively at odds with the evidence, with the idea that, in certain cases, the sort of absurdity of a belief can be a cost which renders it a credible signal of in-group loyalty. So often you find with groups and coalitions, they will have sort of quote-unquote funny forms of behaviours, funny rituals, which sort of stigmatise them in the eyes of outsiders. And you might think, in some of those cases, that's a kind of feature, not a bug. The very fact that they stigmatise you in the eyes of outsiders is what makes them credible signals of your loyalty to the group. Because only if you were really loyal to the group would you be willing to suffer the stigma in the eyes of outsiders that goes along with those behaviours. And you might think as well, when it comes to certain kinds of absurd beliefs... The very fact that they sort of stigmatise you in the eyes of outsiders is what makes them credible signals of your loyalty to the group. So one interesting suggestion in this, in this, in this area is that there is a kind of bias towards absurdity when you're dealing with social signalling beliefs. And then there are sort of other properties as well. So one important property is that obviously you would expect these beliefs to be widely advertised. So if their function is to signal certain information about you, there's no point just sort of keeping it inside your head. You'd also expect these beliefs to be sort of most prominent among certain kinds of people, namely the people who have the greatest incentive to signal their commitment and loyalty to their group. So the obvious case there will be sort of most committed and most loyal partisans of a particular group. They're going to be the most the people who are most likely to engage in this kind of behaviour, I think. Um, there are other sort of less obvious potential cases here. So one case would be sort of low status individuals, individuals who are sort of shut out of society, ostracised. They don't have a sense of a group that they belong to. 
These are often the individuals who have the sort of greatest reason to want to belong to something. You might expect that they will be the individuals who would therefore be more inclined to do drastic things in order to advertise their commitment to a particular group or subculture. And then you might also expect this kind of phenomenon to be most prominent among males. So it's a kind of influential view in psychology, according to which the objects of loyalty for males are teams and coalitions, whereas for females, they're very often dyadic relationships. And so you might expect, insofar as this is a form of sort of within group signaling, it's going to be more prominent among males. And then I also think that you should expect these beliefs to exhibit certain kinds of strange functional properties. So is it worth talking about those? Yeah, let's go into that. I think... Um, it might also be worth giving an example when we talk about this. You mentioned the Pizzagate conspiracy theory earlier. Maybe you could flesh out the idea of functional strangeness in terms of that. Yeah, okay. So um, the Pizzagate example is a case in which many people believed, or at least professed to believe, that Hillary Clinton was, or maybe even is, according to this belief, running a child sex ring operation in the basement of a pizzeria in Washington. And, you know, one potential explanation of that belief is that it performs a certain kind of signaling function. It's a way of identifying you as a member of a particular subculture. And one of its sort of virtues is that it obviously explicitly demonizes somebody who is an outgroup member and an influential outgroup member. Now, when we're talking about social signaling in beliefs in general, we can ask, you know, in addition to which kinds of people is the belief likely to be most influential among, what kind of properties we should expect a belief to have insofar as it's performing this signaling function. So one property is you would expect it to be highly resistant to evidence, right? Because if you're forming the belief, not because it's most likely to be true, but because it signals information about you, you shouldn't just give up that belief the minute you encounter evidence which suggests that it's false. That's one kind of property. Um, Another kind of property is it should be subject to specific kinds of change. So even though you shouldn't change the belief based on evidence concerning whether it's true or false, you probably should change the belief based on evidence concerning the sort of prevalence and status of that belief within your group. That makes a kind of prediction, which is that if you take a belief which is performing a social signaling function, you should be able to change how people treat that belief merely by providing them with evidence concerning how prevalent that belief is and the status of that belief within their in-group kind of independent of providing them with any evidence concerning the truth of that belief. And then finally, and I think the kind of most interesting prediction here, is that you would expect these beliefs to function in a kind of strange way. So if you think about standard beliefs, if the function of a belief is to provide you with accurate information concerning how things are, then you're going to want that belief to guide your inferences and actions wherever the content of that belief is relevant. On the other hand, if you form a belief because it's socially adaptive you're not going to want to draw inferences or perform actions where those inferences and actions aren't themselves socially rewarded, relevant to that belief. And that's a kind of really abstract prediction, but it becomes relevant when you focus on the fact that sort of many potential candidates of social signaling among people's beliefs do seem to have this sort of strange functional profile. So you take the Pizzagate example. Of the many, many people who claim to believe this and seem to be sincere in claiming that they believe this, only one of them actually went to go and check, right? And that's kind of strange because you would think that if you thought somebody was running a child sex ring operation in your town or your city or your country, you would go and check. You would go and phone the police and and so on. And many of them didn't do that, which is kind of peculiar. But it might be what you would expect if the function of the belief is not to sort of inform you concerning how things are, but rather just to enable you to engage in certain kinds of performances which are socially rewarded. But I think you also find this kind of property among certain kinds of religious beliefs. So it's a kind of standard mystery when it comes to understanding certain kinds of religious beliefs, 
that they seem to function in a kind of strange way. So an individual might believe that you know, hell exists and if you perform certain kinds of behaviours, you're going to go to hell and then go on to perform those behaviours and not be constantly proselytizing. And that's kind of strange if you genuinely believe that you're going to burn for an eternity if you do certain kinds of behaviours. You would think that would influence your behaviour in like a really strict way. And in certain contexts, it doesn't seem to. And maybe, again, one of the explanations of that is that the sort of function of the belief is not to guide your actions, really, but to enable you to signal that you're a member of a particular in-group. I was wondering if you've considered how political misinformation and signalling beliefs change over time. For instance, it looks like, at least in the US, politics has become more polarised relative to the 1950s and thereabouts. Do you have some explanation for that? Not really, to be honest. Um, I think it is sort of puzzling. I think there are many reasons why the countries like the UK and the US have become more polarised. Some of them are very specific to their institutional context. But I think as well, it's important to bear in mind that what we're talking about here is sort of group-based misinformation. And often in politics, that means we're talking about political parties. But people are members of all kinds of different groups. And these groups differ in their significance in different contexts. So it might have been that, you know, 50 or 60 years ago, the US was not particularly polarised along political lines, but it definitely was polarised along things like racial lines and religious lines. And also one kind of group that people belong to, which is less salient to many people's identity today, but was very salient, say, 40 or 50 years ago, was their national group, their national identity. And I think many of the sorts of forms of irrationality you often see associated with patriotism could also be potentially illuminated in this way. So I do think that maybe today people's political identity has become sort of more salient feature of their identity. But the general phenomenon of group-based misinformation applies to sort of any context in which you have groups and beliefs about the world are relevant to group membership. So just to signal like my own cultural capital, I think what Finn's kind of talking about is like Ezra Klein's uh, kind of latest book, uh, what on like Why We're Polarised, which is talking about those mega identities um, yeah. that we used to have a lot of different identities, race, class, um, political party, um, were, were um, for a lot of time um, different identities, whereas now they're getting merged more. And that might have to do with, with why we're so polarised or why it appears we're so polarised now, just because the, the teams we're on tend to be the, the same. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think Ezra Klein's work is important here because the, the point he makes is that What's particularly dangerous about polarisation in the in the US is that these group identities have become correlated with each other. So it used to be the case that you know religious identity would sort of be cross-cut with political identity and ethnic identity and all these other identities, whereas now you find these sort of strong correlations between particular identities, which makes the sort of tribal stakes much greater than they would otherwise be. Okay, cool. This is all very easy to go along with when we're thinking about crazy conspiracy theories and cults and people with political beliefs we've find it very easy to disagree with. Um, but if we're going to be consistent, this has to apply to everyone, right? So just in your own thinking about this topic, has it come to un- undermine any of your beliefs that might be vulnerable? <laughs> well, there are two parts to that question. The first is the claim that if this exists, it's going to exist in everyone. And I do agree to an extent. I think it would be really bizarre, right, if this was just applicable in certain cases, but not others. But I do think there's an aspect to this phenomenon which hasn't really received sufficient attention, which is sort of variation in people's 
personality and traits and how that bears on how they treat information. One of my favourite novels is 1984. And one of many reasons why 1984 is a great novel is because it depicts the way in which people are very different in how they respond to these really powerful social incentives when it comes to how they form beliefs about the world. So on the one hand, you've got Winston Smith and Julia who managed to preserve this sort of gulf between what they privately believe about the world and what they profess to believe. And then on the other hand, you've got Winston's neighbour, who is still loyal to the party, even when he's facing sort of death camps or imprisonment because his own child um, reported him to the thought police. And I think in general, it might very well be the case that there is sort of individual variation in how susceptible people are to these kinds of incentives. And I've got no idea what would explain that variation, but it wouldn't surprise me if there is some. So I wouldn't want to just sort of say in a blanket way, this applies in exactly the same way to every person. But as you say, it's very likely that it applies in most cases and to most people. Then the question is, sort of, how should that influence how you treat your own beliefs once you come to think that, well, maybe what's going on here is that some of my beliefs are just social signals? Um, I think there's a question about how it does, in fact, influence people who learn of this signaling hypothesis. There's a question about how it should influence them. Mm-hmm. I think how it, in fact, influences them is, as we were saying earlier, this is more ammunition when it comes to dismissing the beliefs of other people. You know, this is now a great way of undermining what other people believe because you can say, oh, their beliefs are clearly social signaling, but they're very going to be very resistant to the idea that their own beliefs have this characteristic. And it's sort of difficult to know what to do about that because we do seem to have this inbuilt self-deception of just feeling like it's very intuitive that our beliefs were formed based on evidence and reason. But more than that, I think there's this sort of problematic issue, which is that even if you do the responsible thing and come away thinking, I should probably undermine or weaken my confidence in my beliefs if this phenomenon occurs, you should only really do that if other people are going to weaken their confidence and their beliefs at the same time. Because otherwise what happens is the people who are least reflective will have the most influence on political decision making. Mm-hmm. There's a sort of difficult game theoretic problem where you don't want to weaken your own confidence in your beliefs unless everyone else is going to do the thing at the same time. And you know that's just a sort of difficult problem which is compounded by the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, it's not like politics is a great context where you have a great practical incentive to form true beliefs anyway. Mm-hmm. So in an ideal world, this would sort of influence how you treat your own beliefs and probably induce more humility than you would otherwise have. Given the incentives you confront, typically what ends up happening is you just use this as ammunition in undermining the beliefs of other people, in my experience in talking to people about this. So when we're thinking about the factors that might make us more or less likely to form false beliefs on the basis that they have some signaling function, it might be natural to say that surely intelligence has something to do with this. Um, So the smarter you are, the cleverer you are, presumably the less vulnerable you are to forming these kind of false beliefs. Does the evidence bear that out? Um, No, I don't think the evidence bears (laughs) that out. I think that if you look at, for example, I mentioned earlier beliefs about issues of societal risk and... You know, typically what the research says there is if you take an sort of individual from the population at random and you learn their intelligence, their numeracy, their general scientific literacy, that's hardly predictive at all about what they believe about something like climate change in a country like the US. But if you learn their political affiliation, that's highly predictive. And it's actually a little bit worse than that because it's the individuals who are most intelligent who are most polarised on an issue like that. And I think what's going on there is that In some contexts, it is true that being sort of more intelligent, being more efficient and effective when it comes to treating information, that can be beneficial, but it can also mean that you're much better at finding creative rationalizations for beliefs that you want to hold. 
There are certain beliefs which are so stupid, you have to be really intelligent to believe them. You know, believing that there's nothing beyond the text, for example. You know, only someone as intelligent as Derrida could have believed that, right? And part of what's going on there is I think you have to be of a certain kind of intelligence to find those really creative rationalizations for what you want to believe. So very often what happens here is that if you want to find a sort of absurd belief about something or a belief that looks like it's absurd, the natural explanation or the natural sort of um, response to that is that the person holding that belief is going to be kind of idiotic. But actually what you find is when you look at these beliefs and you find those people who are their most vociferous proponents, they're often highly educated, very intelligent, quite erudite people. It's just that they're processing and, and seeking out information in an incredibly biased way. Yeah, that's not certain. <laughs> um, so leading on from that, what do people mean when they talk about a market for that kind of rationalisation? Yes, I don't know whether anyone else has used the phrase market for rationalisations, but it's just the idea that, as I've already pointed out, when it comes to motivated reasoning, there appears to be this kind of rationalisation constraint so that we can only bring ourselves to believe things for which we can identify a rationalisation. And what that ends up doing is creating a kind of strong market demand for rationalizations, for people who will provide you with information and arguments which enables you to believe what you want to believe for considerations which have nothing to do with the truth of that belief. Um, and what that means is, you know, wherever you've got a strong market demand like that, it's going to be sort of met with supply. And I think that explains lots of what's sort of distinctive about political media. It's not a matter of people trying to inform people concerning what's true. It's a matter of media institutions providing people with excuses to believe things for considerations that have nothing to do with their truth. So that's the sort of general idea behind the market for rationalizations. Great. So just a couple of final questions. First one is, what philosophical view have you changed your mind about? So one thing that I definitely changed my mind about is the question of sort of to what extent are human beings rational? I think, I used to think human beings are sort of remarkably irrational in the way in which they make decisions and form beliefs. And, you know, there is some good evidence for that conclusion. Disciplines like behavioural economics are largely founded upon showcasing cases where people deviate from norms of rationality. And I think if you just look around at the world, you look at things like religion and politics, it's often a sort of very attractive conclusion that people are just massively, almost absurdly irrational. And I've since changed my mind about that. And I think... Although there clearly are certain cases in which people are just making bad decisions, I think very often when we're classifying something as irrational, we're just not sufficiently responsive to the very particular incentives that people confront when it comes to treating information. And if you have the belief, which is a sort of very natural belief, especially to philosophers, that the only thing people care about when it comes to forming beliefs is the truth, much of behavior, much of human behavior just looks really bizarre and really irrational. But once you recognize that human beings have a kind of plurality of distinct goals, some of which come into conflict with the truth, much of human behavior that would otherwise seem really irrational starts to look quite adaptive and rational. Huh. So you might have rational reasons to form beliefs aside from just tracking the truth accurately. That's the idea, yeah. I mean, Brian Kaplan has this useful concept of rational irrationality, which is roughly cases in which it's sort of instrumentally rational to think and reason in ways which are epistemically irrational. Got it. And the last question is, which three books or films or whatever would you recommend to anyone who wants to find out more about political signalling and all these other topics? So I've already mentioned the work of Dan Kahan. Um, he's a legal scholar, social scientist at Yale. He does amazing work in political psychology. 
in terms of, so I would sort of just check out his Google Scholar page, his website for his own research. In terms of sort of three specific books or articles, um, one fantastic book is by John Maynard Smith and David Harper called Animal Signals, which is signaling theory in the context of evolutionary biology. One great article is an article by Eric Funkhauser called Beliefs as Signals, which is an attempt to develop the idea that beliefs can be illuminated by their social signaling function. And then a great book on this topic for a kind of popular general audience is Elephant in the Brain by Kevin Simler and Robin Hansen, which is just this beautifully, maximally cynical portrait of human behavior, which really does, I think, sort of change how people view the world after they read it. So I'd strongly recommend it. Fantastic. Dan Williams, thank you very much. Thanks. Cheers. That was Dan Williams on political misinformation, self-delusion and signalling. If you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Dan. There we go into more detail on the books and studies Dan mentioned, and you can find links to his own writing. Also, we'd be really grateful if you could leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. We're just starting out, and at the time of recording, we don't have any reviews yet. Your feedback would help us improve and others find the show. And of course, if you'd like to support the show more directly, you can also leave a tip by following the link in the show notes. Thanks very much for listening.